Hello and welcome to We Are The University, a podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Nick Safel. In today's episode, we speak to Daphne Marchenko, a PhD student at the Faculty of Education. We talk about her passion for social justice, behaviour genetics and her work with low-income youth at Camp Phoenix. We also talk about rowing and her determination to make the sport more accessible. Where did you grow up then? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting story. Yeah. So I was born in London, actually. Okay. Uh, but I was born in London because my parents were living in Kyrgyzstan at the time. And uh, the medical system there was not as good as the UK. So they went over to the UK to have me and then went back to former Soviet Union. Okay. Um, and then I spent a lot of my childhood moving around. We lived in Moscow, Russia, Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, we came to the US when I was around four years old um, and we're in and out from there. So every time we went abroad, we came back to the same house in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, DC. And what sort of inspired your parents to move around so much? I know you talked about the medical facilities, but was there anything else that inspired them? Yeah, so my father uh, has recently retired from the U.S. State Department, equivalent of the, the foreign office in the U.K. And so because he is Ukrainian and grew up speaking Russian, he's a native Russian speaker, he often got posted to positions in Eastern Europe. Okay. And so that's why a lot of my childhood was in different locations in Eastern Europe. Where, where did you go to university? I went to Stanford University in California. Okay. And what inspired you to go from California, which is beautiful? <laughs> I'm biased. All my family are from California, so <laughs> you, you can't tell from my accent, but yeah. Um, and so what inspired you to go from um, Stanford to, to Cambridge? Well, I think I have a little bit of a habit of going to education institutions that I've never visited before going. So I had, I had never been to the West Coast before, uh, before Stanford, and I had never visited Cambridge before going to Cambridge. And I suppose the, the main reason for Cambridge was that I had, the summer after my um, junior year at Stanford, I had started working for an organization by the name of Camp Phoenix, which is focused on bridging the summer and opportunity gaps um, that happen predominantly to low-income children in the United States. So what that means is if you look at education outcomes of children, the area in which low-income children fall behind the most occurs over the summer months. So Camp Phoenix is a program that's designed to help stop that gap from increasing and to narrow that gap by providing education opportunities for children from these backgrounds in an outdoor education environment. So it's not just helping to bridge the summer learning gap, but also to bridge the opportunity gap. So to provide kids with opportunities to explore outside, go hiking, uh, live in an area of California that they've never been to before that's near the ocean and in the hills, and really give them experiences that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, but that experience, working at Camp Phoenix was really life-changing for me because it changed my academic trajectory. And uh, when I was looking at Cambridge, I found a program in the education faculty that spoke exactly to what my new interest was, which was very much focused on social justice in education. 
And so I went over to Cambridge for an MPhil in politics, development, and democratic education because it was really focused on discussing issues of equity, social mm-hmm. justice, race, class within the context of international global education. Okay. Now, just give me one second because you just you said uh, I was going to ask a million questions about Camp Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just, just gave that all away. <laughs> no, it's great. So, um, okay, I'll throw in a, a little a pre question. So, so you're at Stanford now. How did you get into Camp Phoenix? What was what the where, how did you find the program? And what was it that you found so inspiring about the work at Camp Phoenix then? I think when I first when I first found out about Camp Phoenix and applied, I was simply looking for something to do with my summer to have a paid job. But mm-hmm. what ended up happening was once I found myself at camp, it was really transformative. The group of kids that we were working with were the same age as my youngest sister. So they were all kids right. who were around the age of 10 or 11. And hearing about their experiences growing up, learning more about the U.S. education system and about how uh, inequitable education plays out in accordance with race and class lines in the United States really made me aware of the fact that had my sister, had I been born into a different setting, we would have had drastically different opportunities and experiences. And it really opened my eyes to an area of the U.S. that really needs a lot of focus and attention. You know, we think of education as an equalizing institution. Yeah. We see it as a ladder for for mobility, for access. But the fact is that in the U.S. context, education is not like that. Not all children receive the same quality education. And it just perpetuates this cycle of... Uh, poverty and disempowerment really and so becoming aware of that you know when I was going to an institution that was incredibly privileged and full of individuals who had not come from a background like the kids I was working with really made me realize that um, that's what I wanted to do with my life I wanted to have create situations in which kids from backgrounds like the ones I was working with in East Oakland could find yeah. themselves at a place like Stanford. Who were the, the authors that inspired you or, you know, got you thinking about social justice? There are a number, but I'd say for my current work, the two that stand out to me, well, the first is Dorothy Roberts, who I came across during my undergraduate degree in medical anthropology. She is a, an American scholar and social justice advocate that speaks a lot about gender, race, and class with regards to legal issues, and she focuses predominantly on reproductive health uh, and bioethics, which is the ethics of, in a broad terms, scientific research. Um, And part of the reason why she's been so inspirational for me is not only because of the areas of work that she focuses on, but the presence that she has with not only academia, but outside of it. And that's something that I think a lot about, because if I consider myself to be a social justice advocate, uh, someone interested in inequity, then you run into the issue of what happens if I stay in academia and I'm not making an impact on the lives of, say, for example, the kids that I work with at Camp Phoenix. If I'm just producing papers that are not accessible to the groups that I'm most concerned with. And Dorothy Roberts is really someone who's been able to bridge that gap 
uh, and to advocate for the rights of marginalized communities and affect the experiences of those marginalized communities among which she is included. She's a black woman mm-hmm. um, in a really positive way. And so I, I look to her not only for her scholarship, but for the impact that she's been able to have at crossing that divide between the quote unquote ivory tower of academia uh, and the real world, so to speak. Um, and then Prudence Carter is uh, another scholar that I greatly admire. She is a researcher of education, focusing on educational inequity. And um, I have been drawn to her work for very similar reasons. She has a very strong presence within um, the field of education in the U.S., but okay. also more broadly within sociology, uh, with across disciplines. And I think that that's something that also is very important to me, reaching out across disciplines and being able to have an audience that is not just one particular yeah. group or community, um, being able to be accessible by a range of people within academia itself yeah. uh, so that your work's not just circulating within the same circles or within circles of people that are already going to be the most receptive to the arguments that you are making. Yeah. So uh, that's that's why I respect her. What was it like for you um, coming to Cambridge and being an international student? Do you remember what your experience was when you first got here? Yeah, it's really interesting because when I was preparing to come over to the UK, a lot of people told me, oh, just prepare yourself for some culture shock, for adjusting to a lot of differences. And I don't know, maybe the fact that I had moved around so much as a kid, Mm -hmm. I came to England and I was like, oh, this is just like the US. You know, how did you settle in? What, What was your sort of strategy to settling in? Well, I'm very fortunate that when I started secondary school, I found the sport of rowing after being an incredibly unathletic individual. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is interesting because we often think of rowing as being a very elitist, upper yeah. income type sport. And I went to a state school in Virginia, and we happened to have a rowing team there. Um, and that's fairly common, actually, for the East Coast. All right. For for state schools to have rowing teams. And so I got to join my school rowing team. And that was, again, another moment in my life that was very life-changing because it really opened my eyes to a lot of opportunities, allowed me to travel to places that I had never been to before. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I went to Cambridge, I was rowing with the university team. And so I immediately found a community of strong, inspiring women there. And with rowing, I got to know undergrads, I got to know postgrads from an array of different colleges studying an array of different courses. And so that really expanded my network a lot. Going back to the the image that rowing has as being a very white and upper income sport is that, you know, with the work that I do with Camp Phoenix, with providing, uh, working to help empower kids and give them opportunities so that they can reach their full potential. I see the same thing with rowing. Rowing is another area like education that has an opportunity gap and an access gap. And the same work that we're doing in education to provide more equitable education, more equitable access to quality education, we need to be doing the same thing with rowing. Uh, And so my big thing is I want kids of color to see themselves as rowers, to see it as a place where they also could belong. With your students at Camp Phoenix, what's their background? 
So all of our kids are low income. Okay. And what we do is Camp Phoenix is a three-week-long program in which kids come and live on our grounds. We're near Half Moon Bay, which is uh, south of Oakland, where most of these kids are coming from. It's near the ocean, um, in the just slightly inland in the hills. And all families pay $40, $40 for those three weeks in which their kids wow. are full-time living at camp yeah. with three meals a day, field trips to places like the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Mm -hmm. um, so all the kids are low income. But yeah. the the reality is, is that in the U.S., if you're a person of color, you yeah. are more likely to be low income than you are if you are not a person of color. And so yeah. most of our kids also happen to be kids of color, namely African-American, Black, um, and Hispanic. Okay. Do you th when you're talking about the U.S. education system, I think about all the practices that policymakers put into place. Like I remember there was that one, um, no child gets left behind. That mm -hmm. was a program, wasn't it? Yes. And in your opinion, what have been the success stories or successful models that they've been able to put into place? Well, I think the issue with these big policies like no child left behind under the Bush Bush administration or race to the top under the Obama administration is that they were so high stakes. So they were putting schools and teachers under immense pressure to produce results that in the end were causing school systems to fudge results essentially. Okay. So there were issues in which school districts would, um, provide students with answers to the big exams before the exams would be formally taken to try and boost scores or changing answers once kids had taken the test to try and boost scores. So what ended up happening was on the ground, it might have looked as if improvements were being made, yeah. but teachers and schools were under such pressure to provide results because they risked losing funding if they didn't, mm -hmm. that they were making changes in order to make it, a, it, it appear as if... Uh, those gains were actually happening when on the ground things weren't changing in the ways that uh, these policies were intended to create change. Okay. So, so that, that is part of the issue is that when you make education policy so closely tied to money and receiving yeah. funding, if you threaten schools with being shut down, if they don't achieve results and don't necessarily provide teachers with the tools to help them with improving the ways that they reach their students, then you're going to get situations like what we saw in the aftermath of No Child Left Behind. Yeah. Um, and I think that in terms of effective approaches to education, if you look at the U.S. public education system, we now have more students of color in the public education system than we do non-students of color. Okay. But our teacher workforce is predominantly white and predominantly female. And so a lot of research is coming out saying that we need to provide more culturally relevant pedagogy, which is systems of learning that really speak to the experiences of students. And these experiences might not necessarily be the same experiences that their teachers have come have, from. Have come and from, so they, yeah. need to learn, they need to learn about the experiences of their students and be able to provide systems of learning that take into account those different backgrounds, the different knowledge systems that these kids might come into school with. Do you ever listen to This American Life? Yes, I love that podcast. Yeah, of course. It's great. I can't remember what episode it I listened to, but it was about um, the classic model that used to work in the 50s of the, the bus system, busing kids mm -hmm. from different neighborhoods to different schools mm -hmm. and finding that that was the, the most successful way 
of bridging the bridging the gap the academic mm-hmm. gap i mean so- definitely i think one thing that people often forget is that desegregation is not the same as integration no. yeah. and so you know according to the us constitution the, the law supreme court brown versus board of education in 1954 mm-hmm. now segregated schools is illegal But what happens is in the U.S., we've got a lot of racial and economic segregation according to geography. And the way the schooling system goes is that children tend to go to schools that are located within their community, within their neighborhood. Yeah. And so So, you end up having segregated schools, even though desegregation is is a policy in the U.S. And the kids probably from that background, if they're mixing entirely with people from the same socioeconomic background the, the problem must be just continually revolving exactly yeah. and so what integration is is the, the conscious effort to promote desegregation yeah. so busing kids to schools outside of their district yeah is an example of integration yeah. but that's something that uh, there's a lot of resistance to yes. currently in the US. Yeah. how does this how does like camp phoenix and um your, the, the choices you made in undergrad, how does that relate to your research now? Like, what did you do your PhD on? Yeah, so when I was in undergrad uh, at Stanford, I studied medical anthropology and Russian language. The Russian part comes from, you know, my childhood experiences. Yeah, childhood, yeah. Uh, and anthropology, the focus on medical anthropology was because I was really interested in how the concept of genes and genetics shape our understandings of self. Um, When I started my PhD at Cambridge, I was really interested in bringing my passion for social justice, for uh, addressing inequity in education with my background in medical anthropology. And um, it really was born out of a documentary I watched called DNA Dreams, which followed a genetics research consortium that was interested in finding the genes for intelligence. Okay. And the U.S. has, and not just the U.S., the U.K. as well, Western Europe, has a history of linking genetic discourses with understandings of race and class and using genetics to justify the social inequalities and hierarchies that we see within our society. Yeah. And so I was really interested in what are the social and ethical implications of this growing research into the genetics of intelligence, the genetics of educational attainment, the genetics of education outcomes like dyslexia or ADHD. What are the implications of that research within a context where there are very stark racial and socioeconomic disparities in education outcomes, given this ugly history that underpins the field of what is known as behavior genetics research? So my PhD was really interested in looking at how teachers uh, view what I call historically burdened concepts. Okay. And I uh, consider those historically burdened concepts to be intelligence, race, and socioeconomic status. So I was interested in how teachers understood those concepts in relation to genetics and in relation to the field of behavior genetics, which is in more recent years arguing that their findings should be incorporated into education policy and right. curriculum. So so how dangerous is it to sort of you're almost putting categories and labels on children before they've even started school in some ways. Would- right. I mean, 
we tend to think of genes and genetics in very essentialist, deterministic, fatalistic yeah, terms. Exactly. And um, even if we know that environment plays a big role, thinking about genes, we we see it being a very narrow definition, uh, very deterministic. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that is coming out of the field of behavior genetics, they call it genetically informed education research okay. or the concept of precision education, which is similar to precision medicine, yeah. analogous to precision medicine. Yep. The idea that a child could go to their doctor's office, go to their GP, get a cheek swab, and determine whether, for example, they would be predisposed to developing dyslexia okay. or ADHD. And then what happens for schools, if families are to come and say, I've just had my child tested, they're predisposed to dyslexia, I would like you to preemptively put in reading interventions for them yeah. now. In some sense, there's pluses and you know, minuses to that, that people would then be just grouped. Would there be segregation of classrooms? I'm just thinking, you know, how would the model be implemented? Right. I mean, yeah. there, there are a host of issues that yeah. come along with this possibility. And I, I should be clear that at the current state, the research in the field of behavior genetics is not at the stage yet where they can provide a reliable predictor okay. for something like intelligence or ADHD. Um, but they're arguing that the heritability or the genetic influence that are affecting these outcomes has been established to be reasonable, reasonably high over around 50% or over 50%. And so wow. they're saying, how can we ignore genetics when it's playing at least half of the role in what the outcomes that we see um, in, in children in schools? Yeah. Now, the potential issues that this can introduce are, one, we have a history of using the idea of genetics to legitimize race and class-based differences. Yeah. If we are to reach a point where genetic prediction proves actionable, it introduces a host of possibilities to further racism and classism. Yes. Yeah. But also, it introduces the opportunity to further social inequality in the sense that what kinds of parents are going to have access to this information, mm -hmm. what kinds of schools are going to have the opportunities to respond to these developments. Uh, I think it Personally, it's, I'm of the opinion that it's very unlikely that public schools, state schools, would have the resources or the manpower to be able to use genetic information should it ever prove to be actionable or beneficial, which is far yeah. from certain. Far from, yeah. Which means that it's more likely that private schools yep. are going to be the ones more likely to be able to implement these kinds of systems, which yeah. are schools that predominantly upper-income parents are sending their kids to. Of course, the height. Yeah, the high resources. Yeah. What would be the threat to public schools of precision education? I really would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, public schools are already under threat right now yeah. in the U.S. We are increasingly seeing the privatization of education in the form of charter schools, which yeah. are similar to independent schools in the U U.K. So public schools are already under threat. And um the possibility of genetically informed research being brought into education, I believe, puts public under education under even greater threat. Thank you so much for taking part. It's been brilliant, to it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank so. you so much. That's it from us at the We Are The University podcast. If you like what you're hearing, 
don't forget to head on over to the iTunes store or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating. I'm Nick Safel and see you next week.